Thanks for joining us today for the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast, a place where trauma, hardship, and challenge meet faith and hope for the future. Here is your host, Jill Riley. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. Season three has arrived. I am so excited to share with you this season new guests, new topics, and some great conversations. So tune in every week on Fridays. We will have a new episode. Also, this season, we will celebrate our 100th episode. So stay tuned for that. Just happens to fall on my birthday, October 28th. So we will have a big celebration. Thank you so much for joining us. And here's today's guest. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and today I am joined by Ron Ramsey. Ron, how is life in Michigan today? Warming up. We're up. We're having a heat wave up to uh, twenty-seven. Up to twenty-seven. Well, by the time this airs, you should be in full spring mode, and everybody will think twenty-seven is just horrible. <laughs> well, hopefully, my crocuses have come up on time. Hopefully. You know, in Montana, what happens is the spring flowers come up and then it snows on top of them and then they get all mad and die. Yeah, well, that's happened here before. (laughs) Let me tell you. Michigan is pretty unpredictable. Yep, same here. Let me tell you a little bit about Ron. Ron has an MED, a D-Men, and a licensed marriage and family therapist, is a marriage counselor and clinical chaplain. He's retired from corporate life after a 25-year career as an organizational development consultant specializing in large-scale culture change. After earning a doctorate in family therapy, he has worked in I worked as a licensed marriage and family counselor in private practice. In 2017, he completed the requirements of the Association for Clinical Pastoral Education for hospital chaplaincy with additional training in palliative care chaplaincy. The majority of his work has been with since then has been with patients receiving palliative care and their families. He lives in Rochester Hills, Michigan, with his wife, daughter, and service dog. What kind of a service dog do you have he's a labradoodle oh fun how long have you had him he's four and a half years old cool is he going to make a visit for us oh there he is (laughs) he's supervising us yes he's sleeping in his chair Very good. So tell me about the change from going from corporate world and organizational development to marriage and family therapy. What what prompted that course of change of direction? Well, in the kind of work I was in, my job was to help companies perform better. And one of the things I noticed that caused people to not perform at their top was personal issues, particularly marriage issues. And so rather than working with companies of individuals, I decided I wanted to work with individuals and marriages and try and help them do what I do, whatever they could do to improve their life, to make, to make a better quality of life for themselves. Was that hard to change from working um, with large groups to working with just couples or individuals? Well, I guess the obvious answer is people are people. (laughs) And uh, working with couples is not a whole lot different than working with groups. Everybody 
everybody has challenges and the only difference is the the training that I had and the methods that I used were were different but the kind of work that I was doing in essence to me was pretty much the same that's interesting I don't think many people would see the connective tissue between those things but it makes total sense as you describe it you know people are people and they have personal issues and they bring them to work Right. Our lives are defined in many ways by how we manage relationships. And whether you're managing relationships in the work group or in the home group, uh, it's still relationships. Yep, definitely. And then you went into CPE, um, finished that, and then specialized in palliative care. What was your interest in uh, palliative care? And maybe describe what palliative care is first. Well, palliative care is a degree of um, comfort care that's above what a hospital can deliver without the agreement of the patient or the patient and the family in some cases. So it's when a person is not quite ready for hospice, but they're at a stage in life where their their challenges may not be curable. Mm-hmm. So they're they're moving towards death and moving towards an uncomfortable existence without the additional help of a palliative care medicine group. Mm, okay. And so why did you choose to focus in on that uh, as a chaplain? Well, I love hearing the narratives of people's lives. And when people are in the final stages of their life, You hear some pretty interesting stories. I'll bet. And I also like the idea of helping families that are struggling to resolve um, unfinished business that that might exist between them and the patient that's uh, received the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. What part, I'm running off script right now. I apologize. I'm just curious. Um, What part do you think uh, faith plays at the end of life for people? Well, the biggest question that that people grapple with is what's next? Where am I going to go when I die? What's going to happen? And um, depending on the person's faith tradition, they may have different answers to that question. So as a chaplain, my job is to try and help them step their way through their own belief system uh, from their own faith perspective and try and help them resolve what's next for them Mm -hmm. and how comfortable they are with it. And if they're not comfortable, then my role is to try and help them process what they're experiencing as uncomfortability, Mm -hmm. uh, the unsuredness of death and try and help them become more comfortable with the next phase in their life. Mm. What a, um, what a gracious gift that is to um, someone towards the end of their life. I had a um, very good friend who did palliative care for pediatrics and I just, I, I couldn't imagine doing that, but all of my friends who do work in hospice or palliative care just say it's just such a sacred spot to be in somebody's life. Well, it is. I think it's the closest you can get 
to God without crossing over the line between life and death when you're mm-hmm. with a person at the moment they die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So um, let's backtrack a little bit and I'll go back on script a little bit. So um, can you tell me some about your family and your life there in Michigan? Well, my daughter has moved out now since that book was published um, that you read the description of her and she just got engaged. And oh, that's exciting. Set a wedding date for 2023. Um, my wife works in human resources for a large medical system here in the area. Um, we live together in a home that I built back in 1994. Um, so we both agreed when we were dating that we would never quit working. So I'm still working (laughs) in a way that I'm comfortable with and She's still working in a way that she's comfortable with. And your dog's working in a way that he's comfortable with. Or right now you're sleeping. <laughs> exactly. If we exactly. were on video, if we were on video, I'd have him come over and say hello. <laughs> no, don't disturb him. He looks comfortable. So what is the most interesting thing that you've discovered about people through family therapy? Well, you've probably heard people say, you know, the number one cause for divorce is uh, finances or it's it's, uh, affairs. And probably the most interesting thing I've discovered is that it's none of that. Uh, The things that you hear people say are causes for divorce are usually just symptoms. Uh, I believe the real cause for marriages to break down is self-centeredness, which I would distinguish from selfishness, which also could be an issue. But I think selfishness is when a person's excessively concerned with serving to their own advantage, their own welfare, their own profit, their own personal comfort, whereas self-centeredness is mainly concerned with how a person views the world, what what lens they view the world through. Mm -hmm. when we view the world through a lens that judges and interprets everything around us from our own personal perspective, that's what I would refer to as self-centeredness. And in order for marriages to survive, it's important that each member of the couple be able to look at things through the through their partner's eyes as well as through their own eyes. Mm-hmm. And so how... How do you um, bring those lenses into focus for someone who is self-centered and allow them to be introspective and to have that aha moment to say, maybe I'm being ungracious in the way I live my life? Well, um, that, that gets into modalities of counseling. And the two modes that I use are cognitive behavioral therapy and emotionally focused therapy. In emotionally focused therapy, you help a person achieve that by delving deeper into the emotional constitution of the person that they're trying to relate to Mm -hmm. and trying to help each other understand what the emotions and the feelings are that are beneath whatever difficulty they're experiencing as a couple. Mm -hmm. 
And CBT does what? CBT helps couples look at their perception of what's happening from more of a logical point of view. What kind of schematic or mind map have they created about their situation and help them explore um, the facts and the information? Um, it's It's been said that all behavior makes sense in context, but unfortunately, we don't often understand the context that our misbehavior or difficulties with our partner exist in. So cognitive behavioral therapy helps people try and break down the facts, the logic, uh, the information that um, based on how they're thinking about their relationship, and then rebuild that into more preferred ways of behaving. It's hard to stop behaving in ways that you don't like. So a cognitive behavioral therapist helps you define and new ways that you want to behave and then take baby steps towards employing that behavior in your relationship. Is it almost like um, deconstructing a, you know, a model of some sort and then putting all the pieces back together differently? That's a good way to put it. Yes. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. What was the most interesting thing that you discovered about yourself as you kind of ventured into this world of counseling and therapy with others? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think learning to help people deconstruct and reconstruct their thoughts as well as their feelings has helped open me up to a different way of relating to people around me. Mm. Um, being judgmental and, and, and trying to put a label on everything is kind of my nature. So what counseling has done for me is it's taught me to slow down and try and look at things for for what they are, which are not always the perspective that I'm seeing things from initially. Well, it's said that we all make sense to ourselves, right? <laughs> well, I think self-awareness is an important part of being a counselor. <laughs> it's certainly an important part of being a, a chaplain. Yes, absolutely. So um, we already talked about kind of chaplaincy and what you love about that work. Um, what do you think is the most difficult thing for families to reconcile with at the end of a loved one's life? Well, if I had to give it a category, I'd say unfinished business. Okay. You know, when I, when I work with a family that just wants, they want another day, they want another week, they want another month out of their loved one's life particularly if their loved one is not able to communicate and they're on medication and, and they're, uh, they're not awake. Uh, when they begin to unpack those feelings, what we often find at the heart of that is that there's something unfinished that they'd like to resolve with the person that's, that they're struggling with, the person in their family that's dying. Mm. And so my role is to try and help them step their way through that. Same thing is true for a person who may be um, struggling with what death is going to mean for them. It's not uncommon for me to encounter patients who feel like they haven't wrapped up all of the business that they need to, and that they're leaving loose ends for their family to take care of. Mm -hmm. That creates a lot of consternation for people. 
And so oftentimes I'm trying to help patients figure out what's at the heart of their unfinished business and what can we do to try and get as close to resolution as they can and given their circumstances. Is it possible to end a life where all of your unfinished business has been taken care of? I've met people that were pretty comfortable that their lives were in order, that their affairs were in order. Uh, They didn't want to be in the hospital. They wanted to go home and be able to die in the, in the comfort of their family who were, who were at peace with that. And then I've met some people who were the exact opposite, who just were having a very difficult time resolving some, something in their past, particularly if, if unforgiveness was, was part of the unresolved issue that they needed to work on. Okay. Well, nice segue there. I was just going to ask you about your book, 40 Days to Forgiveness. Tell me a little bit about the book. Well, the book is based on the idea that um, there are spiritual imperatives involved in, in forgiveness. And that's what distinguishes my book from the secular perspectives on forgiveness. While there's a lot of similarities um, there are things in the secular perspective that are difficult to define that we can define with our Christian values and our Christian principles. Uh, for example, God shows grace, mercy, and love to the world through us as his followers. And one of the ways he does that is when we forgive other people. And there's a number of spiritual imperatives that go along with forgiveness that that for Christians make it a different kind of more purposeful activity than for a person who's not walking on a, on a Christian platform. How is it more purposeful? Well, I believe that when we forgive someone, we're looking at, we're looking at uh, that person through God's eyes and we're looking at them from the perspective of their spiritual welfare. And, and when we forgive someone, we're changing our perspective on that person. Uh, we're not looking at them as someone who's transgressed us in some way anymore, but we're looking at them as another person who's just trying to find their way home, just like we are. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to understand them from the perspective that God would understand them. And while forgiveness is something that we do for ourselves, it affects our mental state and it affects how we would treat another person, even if we never have a conversation with that other person about them forgiving us. Right. It, it um, changes the whole DNA of a relationship or how you view a relationship. Right. It yeah. Um, so what is the unforgiveness life cycle? Well, In order to understand forgiveness, I believe we need to first understand what unforgiveness is. And so as I did research for my doctoral dissertation and I I tried to think through what is unforgiveness, um, what came up for me is that it has a life cycle that it takes on a life of its own. Uh, There's a series of, of things that happen in a sequence that if we don't 
change the course of those actions, uh, we end up in a state of what I call um, a vicious cycle of unforgiveness. So, for example, we experience a transgression. That transgression makes us feel that our well-being is being threatened in some way, and it affects our emotions, um, which are not something that we give thought to when we begin to think about the emotions we're experiencing. Then we translate those into feelings, which are our cognitive understanding of the emotions that are going on. When that happens, we realize that there's a certain way that we all want to be treated. And when we're not treated that way, we feel transgressed or threatened. And if we, if we come to realize that those ways that we want to be treated are sort of like rules that are not enforceable, then we can cope more effectively with them. But when we can't realize that, hey, there's, there's certain ways that other people are going to treat me that I can't affect, that I can't change. Uh, then we go into a state of rumination. We begin to build a narrative around what happened to us. Mm. And that narrative begins to take on a life of its own. And sometimes we share it with other people. And sometimes we embellish on that narrative within our own mind. And before you know it, you're in a vicious cycle of rumination that you can't break out of. And the more you ruminate, the more bitter you get, the more angry you get the more you develop what I call negative intentions, which are negative ways that you intend to treat the other person if you have the opportunity, uh, or you may imagine treating them in those ways in your mind, which just continues to feed the cycle of rumination. So that's that's what I call the, uh, the uh, unforgiveness life cycle. And kind of the uh, the dry rot that happens um, in unforgiven relationships. How do you describe that to somebody? How do you help somebody understand um, the erosion that has happened in their life through unforgiveness? Um, you mean as a counselor or as yeah, a as a counselor, as a counselor or a chaplain? Um, well, like we talked about earlier, I try to help them unpack or deconstruct what it is they're thinking. And sometimes it's a good idea to help them walk back through the transgression and begin to look at it from other points of view. To begin to help them to begin to try and identify what are the facts and what are the things that I've made up that are embellishments to what happened to me that may not, in fact, be the facts at all. And in doing that, I try to help people identify how they're coping with the way they've been treated. There are positive and there are adaptive ways of coping. Um, and when we are able to cope in a, what I call an active style, we're able to solve problems or regulate our emotions or find meaning in a situation that's productive. But when I help people deconstruct what's happening and they find that the way they're coping is really avoiding the truth behind a transgression or the truth behind what it would take to uh, change their perspective, 
then they can begin to look for more constructive ways to replace the avoidant coping mm-hmm. with. So people, for example, that have experienced abuse may begin to abuse drugs or abuse alcohol, and those are forms of avoidance and more appropriate forms of of adapting. Um, Regulating our emotions might be things like seeking support or yoga, relaxation exercises, mindfulness are all examples of ways that we can emotionally regulate what's happened to us more constructively. Mm -hmm. So a deconstruction process is a big part of doing that. How important are those coping mechanisms for people as they, as they begin to process uh, things that have happened in their lives? Well, coping is something that we just do. It's not something that we, that we oftentimes think about doing rationally. It's just the way that we react to how the environment is teaching us, treating us. And we all develop coping styles or coping mechanisms based on what works for us throughout our history. We develop patterns. Our coping styles can be changed. Those patterns can be changed. But if we have tendencies to cope in adaptive ways uh, to avoid or to um, disregard threats or to deny what's happened to us, those coping mechanisms are going to be like a gate and the gates either going to lead us to a state of, of, uh, of vicious rumination or positive coping mechanisms are going to lead us to a state of resolution and peace. How would you say a, um, the difference is between a secular view of forgiveness and a and and the way that you write about forgiveness. Well, I believe, as I as I said a minute ago, I believe that there are certain spiritual imperatives that come into play in forgiveness when you look at it from a Christ-centered point of view, that are not necessarily how someone who is not a Christian or who is not approaching forgiveness from a Christ-like perspective would see it. So, for example, forgiveness builds a deeper relationship between us and God. Uh, Jesus told us in the prayer that where he taught us how to pray, that unless we forgive like the Father forgave us, that he wouldn't forgive us. Well, when we forgive like the Father forgave us, what we're doing is building a deeper relationship with God. And in that deeper relationship, we're building a different perspective of the person that transgressed us and beginning to look at them through a more Christ-like lens, more Christ-like focus. Mm -hmm. In secular forgiveness, the key principle is empathy. And while empathy is part of how a Christian approaches forgiveness, we have a different prescriptive way that that we view other people that heightens and deepens our level of empathy, I believe, than a person who is not walking by faith. Interesting. Well, you know, there's so much written about, um, about forgiveness, but like you, like you 
have articulated, there is um, there's a difference in in approach, and so your approach will look very different than a, a more secular perspective. So, which is why I chose to write write the book the way I did. There, there really, there really aren't any books like mine on the market that. Um, take a distinctly Christian perspective, 40 Days to Forgiveness, a Christian's field guide to the to the forgiveness journey, uh, goes beyond what all of the secular books on forgiveness teach and, and deal with from the research perspective. And because there weren't books that approach forgiveness from a Christian perspective, I found that as a gap uh, that needed to be filled. There are books on forgiveness from a Christian perspective, but the ones that I've looked at for the most part are looking at God's forgiveness of us, mm. or they're looking at how we are holding God accountable for something that's happened in our lives, and we are demonstrating unforgiveness towards God. So divine forgiveness is one form of forgiveness. Self-forgiveness and dealing with regrets is another form of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. My book, uh, 40 Days to Forgiveness, deals with this, the center ground, relational forgiveness, how we live in relationship with people around us, even those people who have treated us badly. Can you completely forgive somebody who um, is not reciprocating of that, of that action? Yeah, I think for us to expect uh, forgiveness to be predicated on someone else's behavior, uh, expecting them to come and ask for an apology or to provide restitution for some way that they've hurt us is like us drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Right. Just doesn't work that way. Uh, Forgiveness is something that we do for ourselves, which will affect how we treat another person and may affect how we reconcile with the other person. But there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. The Bible talks quite a bit about reconciliation, but believe it or not, this may be hard to hear at first, but there are no examples of interpersonal forgiveness in the Bible except for the two stories that Jesus told. There's not even an example in the Bible of Jesus forgiving someone for an interpersonal infraction against him. Even on the cross, he didn't look down at the people that put him there and forgive him. He asked the Father forgive him and not to hold their sins against him. Hmm. If you look in the Old Testament, the only example of forgiveness is when on his deathbed, Jacob told his sons to go and forgive their brother Joseph. He told him that years after Joseph had already reconciled with him mm-hmm. and given him the best land to, to build their homes on. Uh, so I believe the reason that we aren't given specific examples of forgiveness is because Jesus said, you're to forgive as I've forgiven you. Uh, Paul said to be kind to one another, tended harder, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. So God's example of how he's forgiven us is our example for how to give people that have transgressed against us. Mm. Very good. 
Um, now, now you're preaching. I'm trying not to. <laughs> That's not a bad thing. That wasn't an accusation. <laughs> I didn't give you the scripture references. That would be preaching. <laughs> so, um, how does having a posture of forgiveness um, change one's perspective on life? Well, there are two ways to look at forgiveness. One is an episode of forgiveness where someone has transgressed you and it, and it happens in an episode and you want to be able to forgive that particular situation. The other is what's called situational forgiveness. Situational forgiveness is where you have a forgiving nature, where you don't look at people from the perspective of they're doing something to harm me, but you're looking at people from the perspective of that person's having some challenges and I would like to pray for them, or I would like to look at them from the perspective that God would like to look at them. When we learn to forgive episodes of, of transgression, it begins to build the foundation for us to to become more situationally or um, forgiving, uh, have a more forgiving nature. So by being forgiving, we develop a more Christ-like nature in how we look at the world around us. And in the book, 40 Days to, 40 Days to Forgiveness, I suggest that the, that the core of that is um, spiritual maturity. Mm. And I name four things that I believe affect our spiritual maturity, uh, prayer, meditation, scripture study, and fellowship. Well, if we rely on those four things to build our spiritual maturity in order to be able to forgive, those four things aren't going to stop there. Our spiritual maturity is going to bleach through everything that we experience in our life. So right. really, I see forgiveness as a core focus a core skill for a person trying to walk a Christ-like existence. And as they learn to for, be more forgiving, they're learning to be more Christ-like. Yes, yes. Which do you think is harder, to forgive oneself or to forgive someone who has wronged you? Well, I haven't done a lot of research on forgiving oneself, self-forgiveness. I think there are probably some similarities between that and relational forgiveness. But personally, I find self-forgiveness and overcoming regrets in my life more difficult than forgiving somebody that's transgressed me. Mm -hmm. Because when I look outside myself, I can see the other person, see what they've done. I can look at it from a Christ-like perspective. I can begin to dissect it and deconstruct it. But when I try to apply those things to myself, it's a little more difficult, which is why I think anybody that's going to be a counselor or a chaplain, for that matter, should probably be in counseling with someone that can help them with self-awareness mm -hmm. and help them be, be able to address their own regrets in their own life, because it's pretty difficult to help somebody pull a splinter out of their eye when you're walking around with a, with a two by four in your own eye. Right. You know, that would be my premise. It just feels like um, externally to be able to offer grace to somebody feels easier than to accept the grace that has been given to us um, freely. Uh, that's harder sometimes for us, I think. 
Well, we when we experience something in our life that we regret, we can't unexperience it. Right. We carry those thoughts with us all the time forever. And so trying to resolve those things is very difficult because you can't forget them, which kind of takes me to the last chapter in 40 Days to Forgiveness, which is nurturing a Christ-like uh, witness. We're, the bad news here is that you can never totally forgive someone forever for good and have that be the end of it. You can forgive and you can feel the emotional peace that comes from forgiveness. But it's not uncommon for something to happen to us in our life that will trigger the same feelings of transgression that we had from a previous event. And it can bring up a lot of old things all together again, which is why in my last chapter, I suggest that people may want to go back and revisit some of the things in, in the book that they've already gone through in processing their unforgiveness. And I actually provide a um, worksheet to help people do that. But that's why 40 Days to Forgiveness is written as a field guide, or a better way to put it might be as a journal, mm -hmm. because it's something for you to continually revisit. It's more of a workshop or a, work, a workbook format, right? Right. In fact, out of the 430 some odd pages in the book, about 100 of them are worksheets. Yeah. And I've taken, I've taken all those worksheets and I've put them into a workbook by themselves so that if somebody doesn't want to write in their book, but they want to have something that they can keep as a, um, a more concise journal of their journey, uh, the workbook can help them do that. And both of those are, are available. In fact, I'm making the first chapter of the workbook available on my website as a free download. Well, tell us um, about the website. What's the website? It's 40daystoforgiveness.com. And, and you have to spell out the word 40. Okay. If you put the number in, it takes you to the publisher's website of my book, which is not something that I keep up. I keep up the 40 Days to Forgiveness website where you spell the word 40 to put it in. Okay. And where can people find the book at? Uh, well, there are three links on my website that you can click, but basically uh, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, and the publisher's website, Westbow Press. Great. Great. Well, Ron, it has been really good to talk to you and I uh, just appreciate your insight and your, uh, your gift of time today. Well, thank you, Joe, for inviting me, and I hope it's been helpful to your listeners. Absolutely. Well, you have a great day. You too. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can find Jill at JillRiley.com, on Facebook at JillRiley.author, Twitter at JillRileyAuthor, and Instagram at JillRiley.author. Also, feel free to send Jill an email at Jill at JillRiley.org. Thanks for listening in and have a great day.